Amen. Thank you, Sarah. Well, good morning again. I'm Taylor. I'm pastor here at Sojourn Galleria, and we're super glad to have you worshiping with us this morning. So as she read and said, we're in 2 Samuel 5. We've been walking through not every chapter, not an exhaustive study of, of the books of Samuel, first and second, but uh, it's, it's a multi-week series that we started in Advent, so at the beginning of December, and we'll go really up until Easter, or I guess we're going to take a four-week break in Mark for Easter. But um, just looking at, I think that the, the series is formally titled Sojourn Houston-wide. We have multiple churches in our church family throughout the city, but it's called This Is He. So presenting Christ the King to us, but through the lens of really King David, who heretofore we've been looking at David's his rise to kingship, his run from Saul for his life. He was anointed a king 20 years before the the text that we look at this morning. And now we're at the crux, we're at the crucis, the, the crossroads, however many ways I can say cross, we're at the nexus point of his life, as Sarah just read in this text where the rise is over and he's, he's not just anointed king, but he cuts a covenant with all Israel and becomes king after Saul and his sons have died. And, and from this point forward, we'll be reading about David as king, his reign. And, and so a greater king was promised to David he was given the promise, a covenant was made to him by God himself saying, your kingship will never end. And that's fulfilled in the greater David, David's son, Jesus. And so we'll look at that. Uh, just want to talk this morning simply about the fact that we need a king, okay? We need a king. Um, and in many ways, David is that king, but not, not ultimately. And we'll, we'll, we'll dive into that together. So this week, so starting Friday, Friday is my, it's my Saturday uh, it's my family. It's our we call it Friday Family Day. So my kids always wake up and what day is today? Friday Family Day. Yay! Daddy doesn't work, you know. So uh, we always usually do something fun. And um, we we did. I I will say confession. We did um, clean the house for the first part of the day. And Robin was on her thing, just getting us to uh, to clean stuff, which is great. And so halfway through the day at lunchtime, Seth hung his head and was like, "Today has not been fun." Um, fair enough. But we we had fun in the afternoon. But it was Family Day, and it was. It was a hard day for us. It just felt like things were sort of out of control. We had something done to our house that ended up being twice as much as we thought it was going to be, a pretty big expenditure for us. And just after we'd focused on our, Jan on our year budget in January and thought we had things under control, and I didn't talk to Robin about it and pulled the trigger without talking to her, bad idea. I've been married for 11 years. You would think I would know better. And then to make matters worse, we so we're focused on that. And then later in the day, Robin's looking, as she's cleaning out the house, she's looking for a box. And she's like, did X person do something with it? Did Y person? And I was, so I went over, and there's a place that she always puts boxes for someone to take out, whether it's her or, or me, to the trash. It's right by the side door in our house. And she had left this Ralph Lauren box taped up with two shirts in it, 80 bucks worth of clothes. And it was really light, though. It was like a big box that was light, felt like trash. So yours truly tossed that, like the day before, in the trash, $80 worth of clothes. And so, you know... That happened again, and um, but more profoundly, just as far as the week, Wednesday, we took Robin to the ER, which a lot of you know about. Um, she's fine, but she's having this recurring stomach thing. And then still more profoundly, this week, we were dealing, I think, on Friday with our son, who um, everybody struggles with a besetting sin. His is ungratefulness. And so we were talking about that with him throughout the day, and that was a pretty tough day for him. And I'm I'm struggling with things that God's showing me, sin patterns in my own life, envy, anger, um, arrogance, lust. I mean, go down the list. So it's, uh, we need a king. 
You know, we, we need a king for the outside stuff to, to order our lives, to order our state, to order the, the society in which we live. But we need a king also to, to order the derangement, the, the misarrangement in our own souls as well. Um, especially if we don't realize that, then, man, we are really out of order and um, born in, into that, in a, into a broken world system because we are broken our fault. That's what the Bible teaches. And so we need a king to organize our life and our lives as a community. And that's what, that's what this passage is about. So three points this morning, why we need a king, why this is a problem, and then what God has done about it. Okay, so let's start with why we need, why we need a king. I just, I just kind of talked about it from our, our scenario. We need, we need arrangement on the inside. Um, you know, most of us what is it, Thoreau, who said most men leave li- lead lives of quiet desperation? Or we can be on the other end of the spectrum and think we have it all figured out, and that's probably an even worse state um, because everyone around you, you're just leaving a wake of disaster, and you're probably arrogant and proud, and, and you're probably hurting people along the way. And so we need a king for this stuff, the intangibles, the stuff that we really, it's hard for us to control. And we need a king also for the, the external stuff as well. We need someone to reign on our behalf to give us peace and order. Um, and so in many ways, David shows himself to be that kind of king. Let's look at a few ways. Um, first of all, he waits on God. He waits on God. He does the opposite of grasping for power, which we see most kings or rulers um, in our experience in this world. And then certainly if you read history, that's the way that they rise to power is they, they go grab it for themselves. And we do that in our own lives as well. But David's the opposite. Not so much, you don't see that in this text, but in the lead up, the multi-chapter, multi-year, multi-decade lead up to this text where David is crowned king, we see that over and over he refuses, he's anointed 20, over 20 years before this text. He's anointed by Samuel as the next king of Israel. So there's a sense in which right then he has the stamp of God's approval as the next king, as king on him, and, and, and Saul does not, the current king. Saul has lost the spirit of God and lost the stamp of God's approval. And yet it takes over two decades for that to happen, and David is given, if you read the chapters before this, he's given chance after chance to grab the kingship for himself, and I, w- I think it would have been really easy, especially because he was told by God, you're my guy, and he had multiple opportunities that looked like they were sovereignly appointed to take Saul's life. I think Paul or someone preached when I wasn't here recently on, yeah, it was Paul, on two weeks ago on how literally Saul's in a cave using the restroom, leaving himself alone, with, and he's, he's left his weapons over in another corner of the cave, as you do, I suppose, when you have a, a shield and a, and a sword and a, and a spear and you're, use, and you're using the restroom. And David is right there hiding out with his men. He could easily have thought, this is the time that God has given me to take. And that's what his men are saying. This is now your time. Take the kingship. David doesn't do it over and over again. And in fact, if you look at 2 Samuel, the chapters leading up to this chapter, chapter 5, if you look at chapter 1 and chapter 4, a man, so Saul finally is killed in battle, and it's David's hour. And rather than rejoicing, uh, David does the opposite. He laments for Saul as God's anointed. And a man comes to him and says, I killed Saul. Here's his armor. Will you please reward me? Because now you're king. You got it, buddy. And what does David do? He puts him to death. The man's probably lying because it seems like Saul fell on his own sword. But the point is, David's saying, you tell me that you killed God's anointed, you're finished. He doesn't rejoice in that at all. And then in chapter four, the chapter right before this, one of Saul's sons, who also would be a threat to David's kingdom, um, a man goes into his house as he's sleeping and kills him in his sleep and brings 
uh, remains of this man to David, thinking again, you are going to be, I did this for you, thinking David's going to reward him. And David does the opposite. David says, you don't touch, you don't, you don't kill a man in his bed. I punished a man for saying that he helped Saul die, and then you go into Saul's son's house and kill him in his sleep. How will I not do much worse to you? And he kills him. So he does the opposite of grasping for the throne. Um, he goes through year after year after year after year of waiting, all the way from being anointed to being sidelined by his seven older brothers and having to be a delivery boy as they are on the battlefield fighting. And then he goes, he drops his meat and his cheese that he was gonna deliver to his brothers and goes and stands before Goliath because nobody else will. They're all quailing in fear. And he defeats the giant. And then he becomes Saul the king's guy. And he goes in and out in battle and is fighting battles for Saul. And then Saul turns on him out of jealousy and starts, we talked about that, and starts to try to kill him, hurls the spear at David as David's playing the, the, the harp for Saul to soothe him in his own palace. So he's, and then that just continues for like eight to 10 years. David is on the run in the wilderness. And he has to feign madness living with his enemies, the Philistines. He's like spitting on his beard, acting like a crazy man so they won't kill him. And then at one point in 1 Samuel 30, verse eight, his own men threaten to stone him. They turn on him. And yet he's waiting on God's timing and God has a plan. And finally, we see the fruition of this, David is crowned. So one, one commentator says, the narrator is implying here that Yahweh's, or God's, that's a covenant name for God, Yahweh's promises are certain, they are certain, no matter how much resistance they meet. I just want you to own that for yourself. This is one of the reasons that it's so important to pour over the scriptures, which are the very breath of God, his promises to us. They will come to pass, whether quick or slow. They will come to pass. We know this. Uh, Christ was crucified and risen for us. He is reigning. He will return. We know this. Regardless of what you are in, take hope in that. God's word will come to pass. Um, what is God doing in this? Is there a plan? Yes. He's, he's creating in David a character that makes him fit to rule. Through all of this running, he is making David a humble man who waits on God. C.S. Lewis, in a sermon called Slip of the Tongue, says, what God does for us, he does in us. You know, we pray for patience. I pray for patience in the morning, and then something happens that tries my patience, and I'm like, ah, and I ignore the fact that God is answering my prayer in that moment, wanting to work patience in me through a circumstance that's hard. I, I wish he had a patience wand. That's not the way he works. It's not the way he works. Um, so this is a story not of change, it's the longest piece of narrative we have. It's the largest piece of literature we have in the ancient world, not just in the Bible, focused on one person, the narrative of David. And it's the story not of change, but of growth. If you read any of Homer's works, the Odyssey, for instance, Odysseus, this is not my observation, it's Eric Auerbach and his great work, Mimesis. Um, but he says, Odysseus, through all of his travels, he's two-dimensional, he's a flat character. He never changes. His character never changes. David, on the other hand, and Saul and all the other biblical characters, especially the more amplitude, the more rune they're given in the text, he changes. And this is one of the things, he's on the run. He's waiting on God. He's pleading with God. 
Eugene Peterson says, so it's a story not of, not of change, but of growth. He says, this is not a David embittered by the long hostility of Saul, not David narrowed into an obsessive paranoia against the Philistines, not David reduced to a compulsive regard for his own interests, not David lazily living off the reputation of his youthful achievements, not David sidetracked into wilderness love affairs. Rather, all that metabolized into a holy life, a life robust in God and prayer and obedience. That's from Leap Over a Wall by Eugene Peterson. And David is my age here, okay, almost my age. He's 37, I'm one year older, about to be two years older. Um, and like I said, this is the pivot point. This is the crossroads of his life. He's been rising and now he's, he's, he's reigning. Um, Peterson, again, he, he asserts, our culture is filled with change, more than any other culture in history, I would say. Our culture, is, it's just rife with change, but very little growth. This is a very important text for us to, to sit in for a few minutes, for a little bit, okay? Um, God's way is not change, but growth. Um, recall, recall the image of the blessed man in Psalm 1 that I think I preached on a few weeks ago, the, the opening to the only songbook of God's people, Psalm 1. It's the door through which we walk to sing praises and laments and other things to God. And how does it start? It starts with the blessed man. And what's the one, the main image, the, the simile that we get for what the blessed man, the man of God, who meditates on God's word day and night, what is he like? He's like a tree. Trees don't change, trees grow. And the life of the tree is invisible, it's down deep. And the deeper and wider that root system grows into the water, the living water of the living God, the more secure it is and the more it bears fruit and the more beautiful and strong. So this is, this is our image and we see this big time with David. Submit yourself under the mighty hand of God. Keep your head down, keep your head out to other people. Most importantly, keep your head up. Keep doing what God has called you to do. Be patient, be long-suffering. Know that he's working. Know that he has a plan for you and it will be accomplished. And in time, submit yourself to God and in time, he will lift you up. That is a promise. Okay, take-home point, okay? We won't be us. David was not himself. He was more himself now than ever through 20 years of hardship. We will not be ourselves. You won't be you looking to you. Self-realization is a huge thing these days. Just look inside. What do you want? What does your heart say? You will become the most, the best version of you, the real you, looking to God. Face up, you will discover who you truly, who you truly are. Because this is a picture of what is the most basic in the universe, isn't it? God himself looks not into himself, but outward at the other persons of the Trinity. God is a happy society, to quote G.K. Chesterton. And so looking upward and outward is the way that he has made us. Be, but our tendency is to navel gaze. Our tendency is to look in within and say, how can I actualize? How can I realize myself? So how do we get there? Stay tuned, okay? God is working his sovereign will for much larger purposes. Um, many of David's songs in the Psalms come out of this time of trial. So many of them come out of this time of trial. If it had just been a quick zip, you're anointed and then kingship, we wouldn't have these songs. And Christ fulfills many of these songs. So a few of them, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from the sound of my groaning? That's David. 
Where did that come from? His suffering, his wilderness experience, his running, his relying on God's word, and that's all he had, not his circumstance. And Christ fulfilled that on the cross. We wouldn't have that. Or for your sake, I have borne reproach, or they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink, and they divided my garments among them. For uh, zeal for your house has consumed me. All these are Psalms of David in his time of suffering that are fulfilled by Jesus Christ. For a much, his life, his suffering was being used, not just for his life, not just to prepare him to be king, but for a much greater king, for a much greater fulfillment. God is doing the same thing in you. This is not just a lesson about David. This is for you. These things have been written, dearly beloved, Paul says, for you, me. Be encouraged. Um, And finally, David says what? Sit at my right hand. God says to David, sit at my right hand, my hand of power, until I make what? For your enemies a footstool, of your enemies rather. I'm gonna make of all that oppose you a footstool for your feet. And who fulfills this ultimately? Jesus. Jesus Christ. He is working all things to their appointed end for your good and for his glory through Jesus Christ. Okay, I hope that encourages you. Um, but this is, these are all reasons that we need a king, okay? Reasons we need a king. So it also is fulfilled in uh, what, what we see here with David and his coronation. It's also fulfilled in his taking Jerusalem. It's called the city of the Jebusites. So it was promised to Abraham that, hey, you will, I will give your people, people that come from you, of the land of the Jebusites. This is 800 years ago, this is promised to Abraham. Joshua tries to fulfill it. They kick the Jebusites out partially of Jerusalem, but they never take the city over. So David is, is, in a sense, he's beginning to fulfill a word that was given to Abraham eight centuries previously. Again, God's word will come to pass. Newspapers will yellow. We will die. Civilizations will come and go. America will go bye-bye. Does that scare you? We'll talk about that later. But Christ will stay on his throne. Of his enemies, a footstool will be made. He will reign, and we with him. Okay? Um, someone said, there, 800 years does not erode the reliability of Yahweh's word. His promises are not stamped with an expiration date in small print. What is David doing here? Um, so, so this is... God's working on David's character in this rise to kingship. Um, He's also, he's a man of character. He's also a man who unites. And what does he do? He does that in part by choosing Jerusalem. So he reigns for seven years down south of Jerusalem in the southern part of Israel, the far southern deserty part in Hebron. But then he decides his capital after seven years is gonna be Jerusalem and he takes the Jebusite capital and kicks the Jebusites out. And they say a bunch of confusing things to him about blind and lame. They're basically taunting him. It's a hard text, but as far as we can tell, um, they're saying, hey, even our blind and our lame, are, you know, the, the, the least, the ones who put up, up the least good offensive, yeah, they could take you down. You're a wuss. And David just says, all right, let's go, team. And so he takes, he takes the city. Um, but he takes, an, he's very astute. He, he doesn't just say, hey, I'm God's anointed. It's gonna all work out in the end. I don't need to use my brain. That's not what he does. God's sovereignty includes your decisions, your using your wisdom, your opportunities. David is very astute here. Hebron, he moves from Hebron because Hebron is, is, is firmly in Judah. That's David's tribe, Judah. But all the other 10 tribes of Israel, Benjamin's over here, are up here, north of him. So if he takes Hebron, they're gonna be left out. He won't be someone who unites the tribes. Okay, if he goes up 
too far into Israel, Judah will be like, dude, you're our boy. What happened? You left us. Jerusalem is the perfect place because Saul, the former king, the guy who was just king, and all the, they were all, all the 10 tribes were with Saul. Saul was a Benjamite, and Jerusalem is in Benjamite territory, just north of Judah, okay? It's not in Judah, but it's super close, so he's got those dudes, Benjamin, Judah, and then Israel, okay? Uh, it's, not, it's not an Israelite place either. It's neutral. It's Jebusite. Jebusite. It's not Israel. It's not Judah. It's right between both of them, so he takes it, and he thus, thus unites all of Israel. So he's a uniter. Didn't someone say, I'm a uniter, not a divider? Was that George Herbert Walker Bush? Someone. Anyway. Um, so God works his sovereignty through secondary means. He, Calvin said something, John Calvin, the reformer, said something like, yes. I mean, who believed in God's sovereignty? Who preached it? Who taught it? Who wrote about it more than Calvin, right? He believed in God sovereignly ordaining all things that come to pass. Okay, to steal a, a line from the Westminster Confession. To, to steal a line from Spurgeon, there's not a maverick molecule in the universe. There's not a single fleck of foam that hits the iron hull of a ship. There's not an aphid that crawls across a rosebud. There's not a, there's not a speck of dust in a sunbeam dancing along that is not choreographed by God. And yet, we're not robots. He uses your decisions. He uses your learning. He uses your mistakes. He even uses your sin. Is that an excuse to sin? No, certainly not, Paul says in Romans 6, right? No, God forbid. However, he uses secondary means. Calvin said, he's sovereign, but still we have hands and feet for a reason, to use them. And so David, he uses uh, the, best that he, the best understanding he, he can to pick up a capital and to fight the Jebusites off. He also, he doesn't just unite Israel, he unites, he st- he, we see the, fulfill, the, the greater fulfillment of God's plan in David and that he starts to unite more than just Israel. So if you read in verse 11, he even King Hiram of Tyre, or Hiram, um, he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. But he's starting to ship cedar logs down from Tyre for David to build a palace because he's paying tribute to David. So that's, a, that's an a inkling of the fact that we are starting to see God's promise to Abraham to bless all the nations, all the families of the world through Abram and his progeny, fulfilled in David, starting to be fulfilled, starting to be fulfilled. Um, also, though, if you look in verse 7, Jerusalem is called Zion. It's the first time this word is mentioned in the Bible. It's, yes, it's an alternate name for Jerusalem, but it's more than that. There's a sort of, I don't know if I want to use the word ethereal, but there's a, there's a sponginess. There's a sort of mystery about the word. It's not just the geographic, the, the geopolitical city of Jerusalem. There's a sense in which it's the nexus point because the, the temple is in Jerusalem. The temple is the place where God meets with man in peace through sacrifice, through the death of something innocent so that guilty, you and I, can come and be in God's presence. It's the, it's the portal. Jerusalem or Zion is the nexus point between heaven and earth. It's the place that brings God and man together in peace through sacrifice. So David, he's bringing tribes together. He's bringing Gentiles to see the light of God in the people of Israel. And he's and through a just and a judicious and a, and a humble reign, for the blessing of the people and not for his own blessing, but he's also, in a sense, bringing heaven to earth. We see this through his rule. And he's called a shepherd. Um, so he's a man who shepherds. He's a servant leader as well as being a man he unites. Um, in verse, ooh, I'm not sure what verse, but you can find it. Verse two, the people come to him and say, you're our shepherd. You've been our shepherd and our prince is the ESV word. So he's, a, he's the kind of leader, most leaders wanna Take, they take power for themselves and they use it for themselves. They, 
They get power to rule, and they use it uh, for the benefit of themselves and their own cronies and their own inner circle. And they fortify and they keep people out. But David, he's a shepherd. He tends to those that he's been given charge of. On the contrary, he takes his power for the most part and he uses it to bless the Israelites. If you look at um, verse 12, it says that, okay. Anyway, yeah, oh, sorry. If you look at verse 12, um, 12b it says, hang with me, 12b says that he had exalted his kingdom, what? God had exalted his kingdom, what? For the sake of his people, Israel. David understands this. It's not for my sake that you've made me king. It's for the sake of your people. You bless me to be a blessing, to pour out that blessing onto others and to be a shepherd. So David's a shepherd and he's a prince. Notably, he's not called a king here, although he is being, he is being crowned king. He's called a prince. He's a vice regent. All of the kings of Israel were understood to be vice regents. God is the king. And you are a steward, the steward of Gondor. You are a steward and you are reigning. You are reigning, uh, representing God and bringing the people to God, not for yourself. We sometimes, you know, the idea of a public servant, we have that in our own uh, republic in our own government, that idea of a public servant. The, the civil servants are there to serve uh, those that voted them into power or that nominated them. And uh, that's not a Roman or a Greek idea, fundamentally. It's a biblical idea. It's a biblical idea. And David, he, he, uh, he well embraces that and shows it. He's also an imperfect king, though, okay, before we move to a much shorter point why this is a problem, okay? Finally, he's, he's all these wonderful things but he's also an imperfect king. Verse 13, should have, it should have struck a slightly ominous note to you, okay? It says that he took many wives and concubines and he had many sons and daughters, okay? Um, and that's, one commentator calls this a plus minus verse. The plus is that when you read about a king having a lot of sons, that's, that's, that's like David, power, good, establishing reign, pass it on. But then the fact that he took many wives and concubines, he's skating on thin ice, he's creating problems within his household, and Deuteronomy 17 in the law, in the Mosaic law, says, don't take many wives for yourself. And, it, and David ends up, that ends up being one of the things that hurts him and his family in Israel the most is when he sees Bathsheba, not his wife, takes her to be his wife and has her husband, his, one of his best friends and bodyguards, murdered. So this is an ominous note, and what is it telling us, amongst other things, that David is not, he, from him will come Messiah, and he is a wonderful picture in a lot of ways of the king we need, but he's not that one. He's not Messiah. We have to keep going. Solomon ends up not being that one either, so still we wait for one who will come from David. Um, if anything, this is just a, a warning for us not to lionize any human, mentor, any political leader, Anyone in your life, your spouse, okay, me, another pastor, do, we have feet of clay. We are sinners who need Jesus. The best thing we can do is be, to be a glass through which you see Christ. Get thee to Jesus. That's my job, to tell you to get to Jesus. Yes, follow me, but even that can be dangerous. Let's follow Christ together, okay? Um, we, I'll never forget, and then on to why this is a problem briefly, but I'll never forget the way that my excellent uh, church history two professor in seminary, he started the class out. Frank James was his name, and he started the class by reading a quote. 
And it was a quote about essentially burning synagogues down. The Jews are horrible. Kill them all. It wasn't that bad, but it was bad. And he said, who, who, uh, who wrote this? Any, any ideas? Hitler? Martin Luther. The reformer about whom I preached and we preached a few months ago. Martin Luther, toward the end of his life, said some terrible things because he was so frustrated with the fact that the Jews were not receptive to the gospel. He was a man, a sinful man, a man who said sin boldly, actually. Okay, that can be taken out of context a ton. Point is, he needed Jesus as badly as anyone. Jesus alone is the king who always does what pleases the Father, John 8, 29. Okay, why this is a problem? We need a king, but the fact is, why it's a problem, point two, we don't want a king to rule over us. We don't want a king to rule over us. To be honest, if we are honest, guys, I want to rule my own life. I want to call my own shots, if we are honest. This is the bentness in us. This is what we are born into. Theologians call it original sin. It's our sin problem that separates us from a holy God, okay? It's a problem. And the fact, even if, if we can't ad- admit that we don't want a king to rule over us, then that's, um, excuse me, that's even more of a problem. But also, it's an indication when I say I don't need a king, it's an indication that I need a king. Um, and if left to ourselves, here's the deeper problem perhaps, if left to ourselves, God's kingship and his rule over our lives without any protection or without any advocate before God the king, the holy, perfect, and powerful king, it would be very bad news for us. Kind of like, I, I've said this before, but kind of like going too close to the sun would be very bad news for you. Why the sun's evil? No, it's because the sun's so amazingly glorious and hot and it'll just burn you up. And, that's, and God just created that like this. So he, being close to him, is a far worse problem for us, okay? Left unaided. Um, Psalm 10, I mentioned it earlier. Sit here, God says to David, but then through David to Jesus more, more fully. Sit here at my right hand of power until I make of your enemies a footstool for your feet. The bad news about that verse is that it's talking about us. We are God's enemies without any help from God. But how can we get help from God if he's, the, if he's the one thing that if we get too close to, we burn up because he is holy and we are not. Um, psalm 2 is a, it's the second, obviously, it's the second psalm after Psalm 1 that I mentioned, the tree, you know, the blessed man psalm. But it's of a peace with Psalm 1. And Psalm 2 talks all about God's solution to everything. It's that he's gonna sit a king on the throne that's gonna take care of the world and of God's people. He's gonna make everything right. He's gonna, in the words of Sam Gamgee from Lord of the Rings, what? You know what I'm about to say. He's gonna make everything sad come untrue. He is, he is. And so um, it's a wonderful thing, but actually it ends up being quite scary because basically the, the song ends with saying, hey, this king is so pure of heart that if he sees evil or injustice, even the slightest scintilla, he's going to, he's going to his wrath is gonna flare up quickly and he's gonna act against it. And actually his reign is gonna be so powerful that it's gonna be like the nations are a pot of clay and he has an iron scepter and he just wham and doosh. I mean, nothing will stand against him, nothing. And that clay pot is us without unaided because we, Jesus said it himself, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more got the father? He, Jesus just straight up called all the people that's sitting at his feet evil. And it's because it's true. God, Jesus speaks truth. We need help. Um, but we have help, thank God. We have help. Um, 
So, let me put let me put it this way, and then move on to to point three, and then be done. So, I was at a conference. So, first of all, David Israel cuts a covenant with David. Okay, they they make a covenant. The Hebrew says they cut a covenant. There's blood involved. Okay, we're gonna split open these animals, and if we break the, our side of the covenant, then do to us what we did to this animal. And David, the same thing. Well, they, Israel, if you keep reading, they break the covenant, as do we. They break their end of the bargain. And then David ends up doing the same thing, as we just talked about. David is, is a king that is admired and from whom will come Messiah, but he ends up murdering, committing adultery, doing all sorts of things, making a hash of his family. Um, you know, I was, I was with some Jews and Muslims. Uh, that sounds like, a, sounds like a, I'm about to set up a joke. It's it Christian pastors, Jews and Muslims, um, and they were sitting in a bar, and no, I'm, they weren't, we weren't sitting in a bar, but... At the beginning of the week, we did have a conference with imams and rabbis and evangelical pastors, and the Jews were reminding us, uh, the, the, the rabbis were reminding us of the Ten Commandments, and they were saying, you know, when the Jews teach the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, they read the preface, the prefatory statement, the preamble to the Ten Commandments um, as the first commandment. So that the, the preamble is, I am the Lord, before God gives the rules to live by, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the iron furnace, out of slavery. Before he tells them to behave, to do anything, to gives them any law or any way to live, he just saves them because of his goodness, not because of theirs. Free salvation offered to his people. And he says, don't forget that. Everything that I'm about to tell you rests upon the fact that my love for you is without condition. I'm telling you how to live in these rules, okay? And so he, he says that I saved you. I brought you out of Egypt and am delivering you into a wonderful land because of that, um, don't worship any gods before me and don't worship idols. And the Jews just make the first, the preamble, the first commandment, and then they combine the next two. And the idea there is that putting things before God, putting anything before a God who, as he revealed himself in the Old Testament, saved Israel through no good of their own, but then from our vantage point, according to the scriptures, putting things before a God whom the scriptures tell us condescended to become one of us, was born poor, lived a life in our place as a man to represent us of perfect obedience to the Father and was crucified on a cross, enduring God's hot, white, white hot wrath against sin for us in our place, burned up so that we could be made whole as the sin sacrifice so that we could come to God untroubled through his torn body and shed blood. Putting other things in our lives before a God like that, or just ignoring him and kind of going about our way, or paying him lip service, is, it's worthy of all the worst horrors. It's, it's a terrible, terrible disposition in sin. And um, it seems like an insurmountable problem. And you know, before I close with what God has done about it, and you know where I'm going with that, of course, same place to go every week, um, is it's not, it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card for us to say, okay, fine, but I'm not shaking my fist at God. I'm just kind of living a life of neutrality. I'm just finishing the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis with my, with my kids. We're in the last battle. It's the last book. However you order the first six, there, people read them in different orders, but the last battle, it has the word last in it. So we're gonna read that seventh. It's the final thing. Narnia gets finished, and I won't, I won't spoil it for those that haven't read it yet, but something cool happens. But not for everybody. There's this character we just read across them two nights ago or last night, there's these characters called the dwarves, and they are Narnian, and the Narnians are fighting against the Calarmines. 
But the thing about the dwarves is they don't take sides. They say their phrase, their refrain is the dwarves are for the dwarves. Seems like a good position, neutral. Problem with that is they end up actually killing Narnians they're fighting against the Calamines. Being neutral, being for yourself alone is actually being opposed to God. To say that, hey God, you made me, if your word is true, you made me for yourself, you came at ultimate cost to yourself and died on a Roman cross to win my total allegiance, to give me peace, but eh, I'm just for myself. To think that that is not the highest form of rebellion is foolishness, foolishness. And to be a Christian, to claim to follow God, but kind of on our own terms, and to put other things in front of him also puts us essentially in the same place. You see? You see? So we need a king, but we don't have within ourselves the capacity. It's a problem for us to, to bow to his lordship. But what has God done about it, point three, and briefly? Well, Isaiah 53 says, okay? Isaiah 53 says, um, he was wounded for our transgressions. And who is it talking about? It's talking about one who had come from David, 2 Samuel Chapter seven, a couple chapters after our text here. David, God is promising to David a kingship that will never end through one of his sons. And he says, when he sins, I will discipline him, but I will not leave. I will bless him and I will bless all the world through his reign. And ultimately it's, it's not talking about Solomon because he, he isn't the one that he, we know that he makes shambles ultimately of, of the rule of God's people. Um, but it's ultimately talking about Christ. But the thing is, Christ didn't sin. But what? He became a sin sacrifice for us. He bore our transgressions on the tree, okay? He was chastised for our peace, Isaiah later says, three centuries later. Um, psalm 2, I mentioned it earlier. Um, the psalm where Jesus, is gonna, he's gonna be the solution to all God's problems. He's gonna be the king that our society and our world needs and that we need on the inside and that we need between each other. Um, but the problem is that he, at the, slightest, at the slightest hint of evil, he's gonna destroy it because he is just and he will not countenance evil and injustice uh, and sin. And that's good news ultimately, but it's bad news for us because we're full of it, full of it. But it ends with a really hopeful note. It ends this way. It says, blessed are, it says, kiss the son. In other words, do, get on his side. When you kissed a king, it was like, I'm on your side. I'll do whatever you say. I'm, I'm doing obeisance. You're the king. I'm not. Uh, command me. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Here's how it ends. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. There's a story I, I read about um, years ago, a long time ago, maybe a decade or more ago. True story about a plane that crashed and conflagrated burst into flames, burned down, burned up. No survivors except one. There's one survivor. And that survivor, amazingly, was a small child. You might have read about it as well. The child was totally well, maybe a few cuts and bruises, but totally well, alive, and the rest of the plane and all the passengers had burned up as the plane hit the ground and exploded. And what they found was that what had happened is that as the plane is going down, a mom unbuckles her seatbelt, puts the kid in the seat, wraps her body around it, puts her knees on the cushion, and just, and the flame just comes and just, just consumes her. But 
didn't touch the kid. Kid was safe. She bore the fiery wrath of that explosion, and the kid was alive and well. That's what Jesus did for us. He, on that cross, bore the white-hot wrath of God. That's what we're about to celebrate with the communion meal. He, his blood, his blood was shed. His body was torn for us in our place because when we look at the cross, we see the love of God, and we also see that's what I deserve. Why we go back and back and back to the cross. He took the full brunt of God's justice, justice and mercy, what we see when we see the cross, so that we could receive the good favor and peace and smiling countenance of God. He became sin, okay? He who knew no sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God by faith. There are a bunch of ways in which, David, I'm just gonna leave it to you. (laughs) There are 10 ways or so in which Jesus is just like David, but perfectly, but better. I'm not gonna read through them for the sake of time. Um, everything that Jesus, that David does, Jesus does perfectly and consummately and to the nth degree. Um, let me just read Philippians 2, 4 through 8. I talked for a while about David not grabbing power. Jesus was the ultimate example of this. He left heaven and all the benefits therein. And he came down and was born poor and lived a life of rejection and was nailed to a cross for us. Philippians 2, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but here's the word, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What did he say of himself? He said, the son of man came not to be served, just like David, right? But to the nth degree, but to serve and to lay his life down as a ransom, as a payment price for many. Jesus is the ultimate shepherd who goes after the lost and the needy and the hurting. He lives for us. He dies for us, not for his own benefit, but for ours, for yours. It's like marriage, man. um, When we in a marriage are constantly uh, seeking our own to, to gratify ourselves, the marriage doesn't work. But man, when you start to lay that down and serve your spouse, it's like they're happy and then you, and then you get happy too and, and they're humming along and then you're humming along and it's working and you start serving one another. It's just the way things work. When you lay your life down, um, then you get it back again, like Jesus said, right? And when we are all about self-fulfillment, and this life is about me, and it's about, it's about focusing on me, it's about you know, gratifying myself and who am I truly, and we're focused on me, me, me. It's the same way. It's like a marriage that where you're just so focused on you. It doesn't work. It's not the way we were created. We were created to cast our eyes up to the one who came down for us. He came to be with us and to bring us up to God. And when that happens, more and more as that penny drops, we find the reason for, for which we were created and we find that that's the way we were made to work and things start to hum, okay? The center starts to hold. Um, Jesus, he laid his life down, he emptied himself and how does Philippians 2, how does that section finish that hymn? It says, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father's Father. Why does this matter now? Guys, we have been given a kingdom. We have been given God himself, the one that our souls were made for. What else do we need? Everything else is just details. And if we focus on what we have in Christ, we will be also given all things. Um, we can chill out. We can stop grasping. We can lay down our perceived rights. We can, be off- we can be offended but not offended, be acted against but let it go because our identity is that God loves me enough to have sent his son to die for me and he has given me the kingdom. He has the kingdom and in, in him I rule. Um, there's this often overlooked phrase in Matthew 28, which is the Great Commission, where Jesus, he's about to go up to heaven to be with his Father and to reign from heaven. And what does he say? He says, go make disciples, right? But there's an often overlooked phrase. He doesn't start off, we usually start off with, Jesus says, go make disciples. That's a cardinal error. How does Jesus start? He says, look, 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 look. All authority has been given to me. Wait, 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 pause. Didn't you already have all authority? Aren't you God? Aren't you the son of God? Haven't you been reigning the universe? Didn't you speak out and everything was? Yes. But as a man, he had never reigned. He had never had all authority as a man. And as a man, he represents all those who by faith look to him. And so you have in Christ now all authority over heaven and earth. Therefore, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. Mark Boda says, this means that God's commission to the church is nothing less than the extension of the Davidic commission of old. As those now indwelled by the Davidic Messiah, Jesus, who suffered and rose again from the dead, so now we are called to declare his rule to all nations in word and deed. Such declaration, however, must honor the character of the one who suffered and was exalted, That is, he says, it must be accomplished in humility and may even require, I would say will require, because Christ said it, suffering for the sake of his kingdom. There is no room for triumphal arrogance in the economy of God's kingdom work. And I'm gonna end there. I have an at work, at home with neighbors in politics. How does that work out? But guys, essentially, it works out just as it worked out in David's life, not magically but in ways that you can't see at the time because his word to us is Christ. Christ incarnated in your place. Christ living in your place, a life of obedience to the Father. Christ dying as a sin sacrifice in your place. Christ, Christ rising. Why is the resurrection such a big deal? People had come to life before, yes, but never representing you, never free from sin and the power thereof. Now that's you. Because Christ rose, you are free from the power of sin and death and is alive as he is even though you die head chopped off, die of old age, cancer, I don't care. You will live and be with him and reign forever. And when he returns, you will get a new body and he will make the heavens and the earth new again and everything sad will come untrue. How does this affect work, home, the private sphere, the public sphere? We'll figure it out together. It'll play out. But I need to close and so I will. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your perfect word. I thank you that it's consummate in Christ. Jesus, I thank you for being a king who came to serve. 
and came to lay your life down. We love you. We bless you. Would you bless this time now in Jesus' name? Amen.